I think 95% of the people in the world, they're not self-motivated. We write in job descriptions, we want self-motivated people. But the reality is self-motivation is not showing up when the conditions are perfect. Self-motivation is, will you show up when you're repeatedly punched in the face and in the guts and the conditions are difficult? Will you show up? That is self-motivated. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is a man of many talents, which we will get into in a moment, but please welcome my guest, Lloyd Lobo. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Thank you for hosting me. I'm super pumped. I love your smile. You've got great teeth, man. (laughs) What do you do to make them look so white? I love your hat, man. I love your background. You got the company shirt on, man. You're ready to go. Definitely. I need some teeth whitening though, because I'm all yellow. So I do too. I do too. Cool. Lloyd, of course, you just released a book, 13 Roles to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. It's there. It's a beautiful thing. Love the cover. Yeah. Which of course, building communities is just the foundation of any successful subscription business. So Excited to talk about that today, but you're also a co-founder of several businesses, including Boast and Traction. Man, you're a man of many talents. I don't know, man. I love multitasking and I think I have a case of ADD. It's a combination of ADD and procrastination. I procrastinate on things that don't bring me joy, but when I have like multiple things going, I will at least get something done and put another thing on the back burner. So so the key rule here is if you want to play the long game, do things that bring you joy and then find people to fill the roles that uh, don't bring you joy. Uh, For sure. Right there is definitely good advice. But I guess to bring that all together, maybe let's start with taking a step back in, which tells a little bit about yourself, how you came to start these companies where you're today. Definitely. So my background is of an accidental entrepreneur, I would say. We rely on talent a lot growing up. And I think actually in reality, what how we're nurtured plays a bigger role in what we turn out to be than sure. the natural talent. Because if you don't harness that talent, if you're not consistent with it, you'll never get anywhere, right? So consistency is the key. But if I had to look back, my upbringing in many ways taught me the skills to eventually become an entrepreneur. I was born in Kuwait. My parents are from India. They were piss poor, uneducated from India. My mom grew up in the slums of Mumbai. My dad was a farmer. They didn't really finish high school, even even grade 10 or whatever. And to those people, going to the West was inaccessible at the time. So they had to move to the Middle East because the the, the currency in the Middle East translates significantly higher to India to make ends meet, to earn a better living. Now, they were very ambitious. My dad was a farmer, self-trained, became a cook, then became a Shandi Rutisier executive chef. And I watched that journey. Like He just worked really hard and became, you know, at the time where Michelin star wasn't a thing, it was Shandi Rutisier, and he became a Shandi Rutisier chef and worked for some of the best five-star hotels all over the Middle East where like hotels are a thing here, right? Five, seven star hotels. And nonetheless, so he, we grew up in Kuwait and starting out, they didn't have the money to take us on fancy vacations growing up. But when you work in the Middle East, the one thing you do get 
is you get round trip tickets for your family once a year for a couple months to your home country. So my childhood son, yeah, you get free round trip tickets in the Middle East. The salary may not be as good as North America, but everyone in the Middle East for the most, when you work here, you get free round trip tickets for your family to your home country, your home base. Is that government paid or by your employer or who takes care of them? I'm just curious. I think the employer mandates that you're, uh, okay. that you do that. It's, okay. All right. It's government mandated to the employer that the employer does this. Okay. Right? Okay. So that is a great benefit. So we couldn't afford to go anywhere, but we had these two tickets. So we'd end up in India every summer. And my childhood's memories, my fondest memories as a kid were spending those summers in the slums of Mumbai. My mom had nine siblings. And they lived in this <laughs> little like brick, four brick sort of cement walls, cement block walls and an aluminum roof, no bathroom. She was able to bring a TV home, but for maybe tens of homes around there, there was no TV. And everything from eating food to going to the toilet was a communal activity. You share the food, you're watching TV. So people are hanging from the grill into your house. Your house doesn't back onto any view per se. You see a little gully and a, and the house next door with like stinky water from the rains and puddles would turn into ponds. But my fondest memories, every summer when we had to go back to Kuwait, I would just grab my parents' feet and say, I don't want to go back. Just leave me here with my grandparents. I love that community vibe. A few years later, Kuwait gets hit by a Gulf War, right? Like Saddam Hussein attacks. No internet, no cell phones. The security had lapsed. And I experienced probably one of the greatest marvels I have ever seen is the community came together to coordinate and evacuate the people to safety. Every building became a sub-community. And that day when I found out about the war, I went down the building with my dad and immediately people were like discussing solutions. In 2023, negativity and bad news spreads and perpetuates and people complain and complain. There was no complaining. It was literally, okay, we have a problem here. I'm going to guard the building from this time to the other time, and somebody else is going to help me. I'll organize food supply. Somebody else is, if you got displaced family members, I'll give them shelter. And every building became the sub-community that coordinated with the next one and the next one. They communicated with embassies that communicated with governments and evacuated people to, to safety. And Nick, I'll tell you something very interesting. We were going on this refugee bus from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan on the highway of death. You can search for pictures and you'll see buses were bombed, et cetera. And you're not sure if you're going to live or die. And the adults should have been crying and worried, right? The currencies are invalid. You don't know where you're going to land, how long you're going to be. You're in a war zone. But I saw something very, in you're in a war zone, but I see people in the bus constantly over that journey, singing, laughing, playing the guitar. I'm like, what is going on here? This is insane. And as I reflected back years later, I found the first C to success. I truly believe there are four keys to making somebody successful or four skills you need. And that first C is community, your companions. It's We often say it's not the destination, it's the journey, or it's not the journey, it's the destination. It's neither. It's neither the destination nor the journey. It's the companions that matter the most. You become the average of the five people you surround yourself with. You could be on a shitty journey on the way to hell, but great companions make it memorable. Or you could be in a chateau in Paris, like sipping champagne with energy vampires and you want to get the hell out of there, right? So I experienced that first C. The other thing I experienced was the entrepreneurial spirit. Now, people will ask me, in a war zone, you experience the entrepreneurial spirit? We make entrepreneurship to be about money, but this is what entrepreneurial spirit means, especially the larger the company and as you scale, 
everyone can be an entrepreneur, but you still need to have the spirit. And what that is taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk and uncertainty. No bigger risk and uncertainty than the war. And if you can deal with the stress of that comes with risk and uncertainty to take this obscure idea to impact, you can conquer anything. So that was, those were the two profound experiences for me. Now, fast forward a few more years, we immigrated to Canada. And I didn't finish high school, man. I, didn't, I ditched all my high school exams. I didn't graduate with a high school diploma. Now, most kids you would ask, if they didn't finish high school or fail their high school exams, they won't apply to university, right? That's a logical thing. I applied to every single university that there was. And it was Canada, so no SATs needed. And luck would have it that one of the colleges called me and said, hey, can you write the math and, and English exam? I had applied with the previous year's transcripts. Now, I went through a British system in Kuwait. And so the math and English in the British system, pretty advanced anyway. So I wrote that math and English exam, and I did quite well. So they said, hey, we need your transcripts. And I just made up a story saying there's political unrest in Kuwait, and I'm waiting for the transcripts, and those transcripts would never come anyway. And they said, okay, why don't you just start the semester? But if, because we're in a hurry, but if you don't give it to us within a month, you're going to have to unenroll. The month came and went, and they never followed up. So two learnings here, <laughs> two key learnings here, because after I experienced that Gulf War, I was always on the other side of risk, right? I was this little kid who was running alongside my dad. Rambo was huge back then. So I throw a red bandana on my head, running around, acting like I'm saving Kuwait from the Gulf War. A very important lesson there in the power of community is there's nothing a group of people united by a great purpose can achieve. They can move mountains if they're united by that great purpose. But more importantly, the leaders in that community, they didn't make me feel like this insignificant kid. They let me do my thing. They made me feel like I was helping them drive the mission, like I was moving things. I was alongside the bus. And it reminded me as I was reflecting writing this book of a story from President Kennedy. He was walking the halls of NASA. And at midnight, he sees the janitor sweeping the room. And he asks, what are you doing at this hour? And the janitor says, sir, I am putting a man on the moon. Great leaders cascade purpose, not goals. And, and that's what I experienced at the Gulf War. That I, I felt like I was driving it. So I finished engineering now and I didn't really, I was not into studying, didn't want to do school. I, I didn't finish any of the, I, I basically didn't write any of my exams and so didn't graduate with a diploma, but I knew I was going to get into trouble if I didn't apply to university. I, I didn't tell my parents I didn't finish high school and, and I didn't have a diploma. So I just luck applied it. Now, another two learnings here. Number one, unless you're doing something illegal as a founder, never ask for permission, beg for forgiveness. It's, it's a key thing, right? Everything I, I have today is because I reached out and asked. All the speakers that came to our conference, all the customers, everything was a function of cold email. I cold emailed you, right? Now, we have people in common. It's funny that the podcast agency that you guys use is the ones that I use for my traction podcast. I could have asked them for recommendations. I didn't. I cold emailed everyone, like from Jason Lemkin to the CEO of Twilio. Everyone I know is through cold email. But so never ask for permission, beg for forgiveness unless you're doing something illegal. And then the second thing is luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. The people who get lucky are the ones that never stop flipping, right? That consistency flipping risk, take the risk, keep risking it, and you'll get lucky. And so I apply, I apply to every university graduated engineering. So now I finish engineering. I really don't want to do this nine to five job. 
I don't want to go and code. That's not my jam. So I reached out to a few business people. At the time when I graduated, the word startup wasn't super prevalent. We wouldn't say entrepreneurs. We'd say businessmen, business people. That was the word, like you're in business. So I asked some traditional business folks, hey, what skills should I learn to become a business person like you someday? And they're like, your communication kind of sucks in, in a nice way. You need to fix your communication. A lot of what we do is communicating from convincing our spouse that we're not going to bring money to convincing customers when we have nothing to convincing investors, media, even employees. They're like, the hardest thing is convincing your employees, one, to join for low pay when you have a small company. Then as you scale, convincing them to getting that buy-in throughout, right? On the vision, the mission, you got to keep communicating. And I'm like, how do I fix this? I could join the Toastmasters, which I did. And I, there's a bunch of things I could do. But I knew that self-motivation would be very hard for me. See, I think 95% of the people in the world, they're not self-motivated. We write in job descriptions, we want self-motivated people. But the reality is self-motivation is not showing up when the conditions are perfect. Self-motivation is, will you show up when you're repeatedly punched in the face and in the guts and the conditions are difficult. Will you show up? That is self-motivated. When you've slept two hours, are you still going to hit the gym? And I knew that, man, if I show up on stage and give a talk and the audience laughs, I am never going to go improve my skills. <laughs> I think it's funny that even for anybody listening thus far to think that you don't have self-motivation. <laughs> <laughs> but so I'm like, you know what? How do I fix this? So I started asking around and I and researching and I realized hey, the best skill I can learn, like what's the skill I could learn or what's the job I could get that would force me to communicate every waking moment? I'm like, that's sales. That is sales. And now when I reflect back, I realize if you want to get good at something, don't look for self-motivation. Put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that something over and over again. So I started applying to sales jobs. Nobody obviously would give me a sales job. Like I applied to Xerox, I applied to tech companies. Luck would have it and see this first sea of community or companions matter so much. A founder gave me a job in cold calling. Peanuts. My parents lost it. Indian parents are like, Yo, your friends are at Microsoft and Johnson. What the hell are you doing cold calling? Fast forward today, I have everything because of that skill. I learned to cold call, cold email, open doors. You learn to polish your messaging, pivot on the fly, negotiate, build rapport instantly. But the first call... I made, I practiced four hours. And then as soon as the decision maker yelled, hello, who's this? I hung up. <laughs> For all that practice. And then everyone, everyone around me is laughing. But then I never stopped. If you look at people who are good at something, they just never stop. They keep practicing. Now, had that happened in a public speaking stage and I was embarrassed in front of hundreds of people, I'd probably never muster the courage to go back. But because it was in a safe environment, cold calling in front of a few other cold callers. They gave me the encouragement and they said, it's okay. That's pretty much how our first call went. And I went over and over again, kept doing it and got better at it. And the function of working for a small company or a startup alongside you get purview to the founder is you learn a lot, right? It's like you're working in dog years. So my girlfriend then, now wife, got into med school in New Jersey and I started applying for jobs in New Jersey. Now, if you ever worked for a founder as your first job, Back then, like no other big company, it's going to be very hard to get a job, let alone on a visa as a Canadian applying there. So I got a job at another startup on a TN visa, the free trade visa, right? I land up there to do sales. I'm, I'm like, wow, this is a great progression. Within a year or so, I go from cold calling to sales. And now this is a company that does enterprise sales. They're selling 
multi hundred thousand deals to Tiffany, Armani. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I go there and there's nothing repeatable, scalable. It was like, walk the floors, talk to these customers, figure out what to build, then communicate that in requirements and wireframes and the engineering team to tell them what to build. Then also figure out marketing materials and website and all of this stuff. And I think this was another case of not self-motivation, but putting yourself in an environment that forced you to do something. Now I'm in, a, in, in an environment where I can't quit because I'm on a visa. If I want to be with it, I can't get another job. I would have to find another job to quit, to transfer my visa. I'm like, and it was a pain enough getting this one job as it is, given my first job as an engineer was cold calling. So I would stick with it. I stuck with it and learned so much because being at that position, working alongside the exec team, founders, where you're talking to customers, figuring out what to build, building marketing materials, you learn so much. You're pretty much like, at that point, you know how to be a founder. You're a renaissance salesperson. When you realized that those were the requirements of the job, that you were the sales department, right? If you're creating all of these materials and, and doing everything yourselves, did you want to bolt? that point where you like, if I can find something else, I'm going to take it. Or you're like, I'm up for the challenge. I honestly wanted the bolt. I'm like, what the hell did I sign up for? Because when I joined within two months, the chief operating officer quit or within a month or so. And he was managing the sales. We had sales department, like enterprise sales reps. But I, I was tagging alongside them and they were closers. So I was like having to figure out the requirements, pull it out, doing the consultative sale. And now these are like long drives from New Jersey to everywhere on the East Coast. And so I'm like, how am I going to learn? So everything I learned back then was about marketing and sales was coming up from HubSpot's inbound marketing certification program. So I started watching that. I started listening to some audiobooks like Neil Rackham's Spill Selling, great book, right? The type of questioning you have to do. And that, that, that questioning framework of situation, problem, implication, need payoff has been not only helpful in doing a consultative sale, but also pulling product requirements because you're trying to understand what their problems are and what the implications are. And, and then you latch onto the problems, not solutions. And then luck would have it, a couple of years of, of a stint there. And my next job was running sales at another venture-backed startup and quick progression in maybe I would say in five years or so. And my best friend from college called me and wanted to do a company together. And I jumped at the opportunity. I'm like, I'm not going to go anywhere up from here. And so jumped at the opportunity to do both. But if I look back now, like I gave you one C already, the companions and the community I had gave me this muscle for building a network and surrounding myself with the right people. If I didn't work for founders, I wouldn't be a founder someday, like work for three founders. So then obviously you will become that, right? The next thing is communication. Everything you are is communication, right? Without communication, you cannot connect. And if you can't connect, you don't have an audience, you have an empty room. Number three is your ability to create, whether it's content or it's products or it's a book or whatever it is, it's creation. And number four, without four, your community, your communication and your creation all fails. It's consistency. Compound interest on consistency is what leads to overnight success. Look at Mr. Beast or Gary Vaynerchuk. Actually, in 2005, when I was watching these HubSpot inbound marketing courses and programs, they had a video marketing course. And through that, I learned to create YouTube videos. It was Gary Vaynerchuk teaching that course, one-hour course, chubby young guy. He was so bullish. He was running Wine TV, and he was so bullish on the power of video being the future of business marketing. And look at what it's turned into. Webinars, TikTok for business, video content on Instagram, YouTube shorts. He never stopped. 
He is Gary V because he never stopped. Mr. Beast never stopped. Who's the single richest person in B2B SaaS? Larry Ellison never sold a single share. In investing, Warren Buffett never stopped. Like compound interest on consistency is what we call overnight success. So if you can't be consistent, I think your community, your communication, your creation all falls apart. But those four C's, if you have it, you can achieve everything. That consistency along with what you already said, which is the resiliency to stick with it, right? Because you can say you want to stick with it, but when you get punched in the face, what are you going to do? Are you going to get back up and keep going or you're going to turn and go the other direction? Necessity is the mother of all inventions, okay? And when you grow up in an environment where things are not handed to you, you have to make it happen, right? Like you don't have the option to turn back. And that's why I say nurture is so important. I fear for my kids right now. I think my dad had it much harder. If you look at my dad, he was a farmer and he was working in the fields when he was 10. He moved to Mumbai when he was 14 or 15. In his late teens or when he was 19 or 20, he moved to Kuwait. He learned to cook and became a chef and became a celebrated executive chef. He had that hardship. We had, although my parents didn't have that much money, my mom stayed at home to look after us because they made the decision that we can't afford nannies and it's just better stay at home, raise the kids. They never made me feel like they were going through a hard time. I never felt, even through the war or when I spent the summers in the slums of Mumbai, through any hardship that my parents may have faced, they never let me see it. I never saw it. I know they weren't wealthy. I know they had hard times. I never saw it. And I think as a function of that, our lives got a little better. We came from privilege, I would say, compared to my dad, because at least I had a roof over my head. I had the food. I didn't have to work till my early 20s. And I could go to college and not worry about massive student loans and whatnot. My parents did that for me. I feel like our kids, my kids, I worry that they're in private schools in the most expensive place. And I'm the same. Yeah, absolutely. I worry that they don't understand what difficulty is. And the thing is, when you repeatedly have an option B, it's easy for you to walk away. I think a lot of your grit comes from having no other option. Like, I got to make this work. I have to make this work. I have no other option. If it fails, I fail, right? There's no safety net. And we create these safety nets. And I think there's a lot of quotes around this, right? Is hard times create tough people, easy times create weak people. Okay, let's move forward a little bit here. Talk to us about Boast. What is it? Why did you think this was a good idea? And how did that this set you uh, down your path of more businesses and writing a book? Yeah, definitely. So what's funny is, when Alex called me one day saying he wants to start a business in this, I literally told him, I don't care what company we start, as long as we build the company we want to work for. So rewind a few hours ago, I was working at the startup and it was just like the venture back space, at least a few years ago, I think COVID has made it better, had normalized this whole hustle porn, right? Like work 24-7, squeeze until midnight. And I was with the CEO running sales and marketing who had taken money from investors who were just hard asses. And they were putting a lot of pressure on him. And so his way to relay that as a young founder CEO was to pressure the team. And he saw everyone as lemons and wanted to squeeze as much as possible. I'd be in the office till nine or 10. My wife was in residency working like 100 hours. So it didn't matter. 
But one week, I started going home at six. A couple of days in a row, I go home at six. And I, third day, I get an email from him. Hey, Lloyd, I used to like it when you're in the office till nine or 10 alongside me. Last couple of days, you've been going home at six. Your wife is a resident working 100 hours and you have no family around here. So what's causing you to go at home? Go home. It's not like you have anything better to do. And I'm like, my heart sank. I'm like, what the hell? Because all my career, for the most, 90% of my jobs were working for founders. And it was this environment of hustle, like basically drive the employees with, not with love, but with punishment kind of thing, right? Yeah, the, and, the stick instead of the carrot. Yeah, and I prefer treating people with love and helping them grow. That was my jam. It was all about that. And the thing was, my parents were visiting. My parents live in Canada. They were visiting. And so when, and that's why I was going home at six and they were there for a week. So that day when I get home, Alex calls me and he's like, man, I work in this space and I want to automate this. So he was working for a big four company, accounting firm that was filing applications for research and development funding from the government. So globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given by governments to businesses that develop new technology or improve existing technologies. They're called R&D tax credits and R&D funding programs. So R&D tax credits. And in Canada, you can get 64% of your product development spend as a cashback. You know how huge that is? Like if you spend a million bucks, you could get 600,000. Yeah, it's incredible. In the US, you can get up to 500,000 a year back. That's crazy. Now as a cashback, and that's, imagine getting half a million bucks as a cashback into your company. How much do you have to sell to get that money? You would have to sell 5 million to have that 500,000 in your bottom line. What wouldn't you do with that? The thing was, it was a cumbersome application process. It was prone to frustrating audits and receiving the money takes a long time. This was the process. The big four accounting firm goes after a company has done a year's worth of product development work. Although it's called R&D, they give you money for developing new or improving existing products and technologies. And then the big four accounting firm, an accountant goes and asks the CTO, tell me what you did in R&D and product development last year that meets this criteria and chew the brains of the CTO. And then write these reports and fill these forms and the government may audit them. So this is a manual cumbersome process. Let's automate this. So I, I, I literally told him, man, I don't care what we do as long as we build a company that we want to work for, I'm in. And so we started Boast. In parallel, we did two or, two or three other things. One we did was we did automatically, which was a chatbot in 2013, which failed, built on top of Zendesk. Ahead of its times, failed with a thousand users. 2015, I joined like a Bessemer Ventures incubated company. So I joined the founding team of that. So in, Post was still running and it was an AI sales assistant ahead of its time, failed with thousands of users again. And to make a go of money was tough. So we also tried to float an events company and the co-founder ran away with all the profits of the first event, quarter million. Like you can't catch a freaking break. And he locked us out of our accounts, announced a different conference to the same list. Now, and he paid like this big name speaker from the money to get them as a speaker. And so because he did a conference, I learned something new. Alex is very smart from a legal accounting perspective. So we can file an injunction because they have the date and he can't host the event. I'm like, great, we filed this injunction and I have never been in the situation. So I was like crapping bricks sitting through this court case and everything. Nonetheless, after months of dealing with this, we end up getting 50K paid to us in six, seven installments out of the 250K he owed us after legal fee and everything. So it's like you never catch a break. And then one day things went really well and led to both bootstrapping to 10 million ARR with 
35 people and no marketing team. And during the pandemic, we got approached by a growth equity firm that came through a community event we hosted. And one thing led to the other, bought the company, bought 52% of the company, liquidated the founders. Me and my co-founder still own nearly 40% of Boast. And we transitioned to the board and it was a good outcome for us. But it's like you're failing and then one day you make some money. And, and and that's how it is. And that's why I say luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. The ones that get lucky, I think I've said this three or four times, luck would have it, luck would have it. I truly believe in luck, but I wouldn't have any luck if I didn't put myself out there. If I didn't apply, if I didn't apply to every university, despite not having a high school diploma, you think I'd get lucky by getting accepted to, and then on a technicality for getting and me getting into engineering? Hell no, right? You make your own luck in those situations, right? You got to step up to the plate. It's what that comes down to, right? You'll never know unless you, unless you give it a swing. But okay, so you go from Boast. Talk to us just a little bit about Traction. Definitely. So Traction is very interesting. Traction is a community that Boast built. I'll backtrack and tell you, so as to give you some context, there's three kinds of communities you can build. There's a community of practice, which is centered around teaching your customers or your ideal customer profile how to become better at a specific skill. There's a community of product, which is centered around learning about your product, becoming better at the product, turning your customers into evangelists, how they build on your product, like the Atlassian or Microsoft or GitLab community. And the last one is a community of play, which is bringing people together to have fun, like the Harley community or the Nike running club. Now, we didn't have any customers and we built a community which ended up becoming our tribe and getting customers and partners and even our investors came from it. But because we had no product and no customers, we couldn't build a community around our product and we couldn't call it Boast. If we did, people would think we're not a community, but we're running a timeshare presentation <laughs> and never come. So that is the context on why it's called Traction. Now, the name Traction is actually tied to the aspiration of our ideal customer profile, right? What do entrepreneurs want? We're helping entrepreneurs and innovators get money from the government right? Money. Basically, we're getting them money for R&D. Why do they want money for R&D? To accelerate innovation. Why do they want to accelerate innovation? To drive traction in their business. So we called it traction. It was tied to their aspiration, nothing else, right? Customers want an outcome. They don't want products. It's like this graphic of Mario eating a mushroom and turning into Super Mario. Your customers are not buying that mushroom. They're buying the aspiration of becoming Super Mario. And so that was it. Call it traction. But nonetheless, I think my nurture of community and communication and creation and consistency made this building a community around the ideal customer profile to build a business actually quite natural, although I didn't think of it at the time. Nick, when you're in the thick of things, it doesn't look like a framework. It's you're throwing spaghetti on the wall. And does it work? Does it not work? Now, when you've made millions, then you're like, oh, this is a framework and I can write about it. But it's never like that. It was never a framework. We lucked into this. So this is what happened. We started the company. We started dialing for dollars. That was my experience. Who do you call? Who are the most stable companies? Oil and gas, manufacturing, construction. Let's call them. Started calling them. What are we saying? Hey, give us your data, your real product development, IP data, and we'll get you money from the government. And it's the best form of capital because there's no interest and there's no equity. It's the best money you can get. They're like, if you had a call like that or an email like that, you didn't think it's a scammer, right? Yeah, absolutely. If I didn't know about R&D tax credit, absolutely. I'd be like, dude, that or there is no way. Way too good to be true. Or if you knew about it, you're probably like, oh, why don't I just work with a big four accounting firm? I haven't heard it yet. 
So dejected from those calls, we started then going to the events of construction and manufacturing and oil and gas. And now we're like, looked like two young guys that threw a suit jacket on top of their hoodie. And it felt like we couldn't relate. It felt like the cigar club, right? We couldn't relate. So dejected now, we start going to startup events. And we find this instant connection, like it's our tribe. They become friends. We became friends with them. They're starting out. We're starting out. We start having dinners and lunches together. We start partying on the weekends together. We participate in hackathons together. So I'll pause here and I'll share a very quick learning that is key. You're starting out. You don't know who to target. Back then for us, we lucked into this. It was just throwing spaghetti on the wall and we landed. But you're starting out. You don't know who to target. How do you pick? Number one, do you love your audience? Do you have the passion for this audience? Building a company, building a community is a marathon of the heart and mind. It's a labor of love. It's a long freaking grind. It's a long slog. If you hate your customers, how will you sustainably create for them? You can't. So number one, do you love this audience? Number two, is it a small but growing niche? For us in 2012, we landed on the startup niche. It was growing. Nobody wanted to service them. In fact, our competitors would be like, startups are never going to pay you. They're going to go out of business. You guys are going to build a lifestyle business. And my answer to them was, your customers don't want to work with us and you don't want to serve people like us. So we're left to serve our own. So you got to be contrarian on your niche market bet. And we followed the innovation. We knew that companies that innovate are going to last for the long haul and that market has exploded. So small but growing niche. Third one is, is there a propensity to pay for us? It was easy. We're getting them money and we were taking a percentage. And the fourth one is ease of access. You can love the market and it could be massive and they could be loaded up the wazoo. But if you have no access, (laughs) you're done. How long can you sustain without getting access? So those four things. The second thing we chanced into it because they became our friends, but looking back, it's a framework is understand your customers really well. Figure out where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. Figure out who they follow, who are the influencers in the space. Write that down. Figure out what are the tools and services they pay for. So who do they fund? Write that down. Figure out where they frequent, meaning what blogs, magazines, what events, what platforms they're prevalent on. So now you not only understand your customers' pains and goals, you understand the aspirations, you understand what stands in their way, and you understand their circle of influence. So once you have this understanding, which honestly, man, we never went like that deliberately. It was a function of us finding our friends, hanging out with them. And because we had nothing other to do than do our startup and they had nothing better to do. So we were hanging out every waking moment. And so those learnings flowed very naturally. Today, it's a framework that I've given to a lot of people and they're thankful for short-circuiting that for them. But that's what it felt like. So once you land there, then now four things you can do. Create an audience. Actually, I'll back up the four things you can do. In writing this book, I talked to about a thousand people. I looked at some of the most iconic brands that started as obscure ideas, but sustained over time. And I rewatched all our traction community content. And I found something very interesting. Every small obscure idea that eventually went on to become a sustainable global phenomenon. And I'm not talking about startups that started in the last 20 years or 10 years. I'm talking about like, generational brands. From Christ to CrossFit, every obscure idea that ended up becoming a sustainable global phenomenon went through the exact four stages. People listen to you or buy your product, you have an audience. You bring that audience together to interact with one another, it becomes a community. 
when that community comes together to create impact towards a purpose that's far greater than your product or service, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. Now, Boast obviously didn't build a movement or a cult. We stopped at community, but we're still young in our journeys, a 10-year-old company. These brands were built over 20 years. Like Atlassian, their community co-hosted or self-organized 5,000 events last year without Atlassian's involvement. That's saying you have 5,000 super fans who went out each engaged 100 people on average. So your community engaged half a million people on your behalf with no budget or marketing from you. But that took them 20 years. It didn't happen on day one. Or like you look at Nike's community, it took years. And so if you keep going on that journey, you get there. So for us, it was, we were at a time where LinkedIn and podcasting wasn't prevalent for business content, Insta, TikTok, none of this stuff was going on. All the content around was conferences and blog posts, right? And the one thing we knew was as a new young company, if we started blogging as two guys who've never done a startup, only worked at startups before and never achieved any startup success because all the companies I worked for, they all failed, although being venture back, nobody would listen. There's no learnings there, right? Like people want to hear your failure learning if you actually eventually got to success. And I'm like getting the SEO and attention is going to take forever. So what are the things, learnings here in going to the startup community, especially when you target a niche, you find white spaces. So what are the white spaces? Two interesting things we found. One, the local newspaper wouldn't cover startups. Number one, nobody wanted to support startups 2012. Today, now everyone's, oh, we're creating startup programs. So 2012, nobody cared, right? They wanted to make money. The second thing was all the conferences and events we went to were high-level CEO platitudes. Now, if you decided to start a company, you're at zero or one, you've, lo- you've given up your job. You don't care about platitudes and inspiration. I don't care about if you keep bringing people like Elon Musk or even like somebody who's got to 50 million, I don't need that inspiration. I need tactics. And so we found two white spaces. And as I do, started cold emailing people, like reached out to the local newspaper and said, would you give me a blog? I will cover startups. And the editor said, man, it's not a priority for us. This is not the stuff we cover. So then I reached out to a regional blog and I said, hey, would you cover some startups from this region? And he said, sure, just I'll take your content, just submit something. And I couldn't write about my knowledge in startups. So I covered two or three startups and I shared it. They wrote the post about them. And those people loved the coverage so much because they'd never been covered on that regional blog. So they shared it so widely with their friends and family, got hundreds of retweets. I took that blog post, I hit the editor back and I'm like, hey, because you ref- you ref- you said no, I just blogged on Tech Vibes, this regional blog, and it's got five, six hundred retweets. If you let me blog on your site, the newspaper is a dying medium. I didn't say it that straightforward, <laughs> but I'm like pretty much oh, shucks. You'll get an audience that is not engaging with the newspaper. You'll get a younger audience. He's sold, I'll give you a blog post. I'll give you a blog post. Now, again, beg for forgiveness. Don't ask for permission. I could have called that blog any number of things, but I'm like, what would make him give me this blog repeatedly? I called that blog post startup of the week. <laughs> okay. And that created this, and, and I covered a founder that just raised 3 million and he was not getting a TechCrunch article. And now I put this on the local newspaper, like the local in Canada, the local newspaper actually ties to the national newspaper. So the site is the same, Post Media, and it's the highest domain authority website in the whole country. And I put Startup of the Week, submitted it, it went out. 
Now, obviously, this person shared the hell out of it because it's like the national, although it's local newspaper, but it shows up as a national newspaper on the blog, covered us. It looks like they're creating an award thing every week, startup of the week, and I'm the selected. They must have gone through hundreds of companies. The third thing is I got a backlink from the highest domain authority site in the country. And so my SEO juice for the website jumped up. And imagine getting that every week. Now, this person shared it so widely, and it got a couple thousand retweets. The editor now had got two missed calls from him. And I'm like, holy shit, he's going to lose it on me. Why did I call it startup of the week? It's like I'm promising a weekly column from the newspaper. And to my surprise, when I called him back, he's like, hey, man, if you commit to writing it every week, and I'm not getting paid to write this, by the way, it's free. If you commit to writing it every week, I will give you a print column. Instant credibility. Everyone gets a blog. Nobody gets a print column. I became a print columnist. I wrote this for maybe two and a half, three years. When I stopped, the column stopped even. But as a function of that, now I got two more things. I got massive social proof for Boast because it was, I anchor texted the backlink to our website. So already tax credits by Boast that that linked back. So we got <laughs> massive SEO. Massive SEO. Yeah. Every Monday at 7 or 8 a.m., you got the founder running to the newspaper stand to buy a bunch of newspapers, give to family members, clip photos, and share it. So that vibe was spreading. That buzz was spreading. And I got a form in there that said, if you are interested in being featured, fill out this form. So now I got details of all the startups there. So I'm building... Now they're all coming in. Yeah. Now they're all coming in. I'm building this funnel of startups. But now that's building an audience, right? How do I turn that audience into a community? I knew one thing, all the events were high-level CEO platitudes because they were organized by event organizers. I had been like working alongside a founder for the last five, six years. So I knew exactly the kind of people to invite as speakers, the mm -hmm. content, watching <laughs> it so close. So we started hosting our own meetups. We started cold emailing and inviting all these people who had applied, other people we knew and say, hey, Nick, we're inviting Jeff and he's going to share his journey getting to first 1 million in revenue and raising the first angel investment. They're gonna, he's gonna go through the exact steps, how they set up the funnel, the process, everything. We got 10 spots and free pizza. We did it at a co-working space. 10 people showed up. Now, the thing is, both those things, startup of the week and those small meetups, we never stopped. We kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Now, one day, 200 people showed up to that co-working space. And we had to hijack all the aisles and everything. We had to rent a projector from somewhere, bring that in. And they lost it. They're like, guys, you can't do this. This is not a conference hall. Next time you want to do an event this size, we don't have the room. You got to find a conference venue. But we hacked it together. And that's what turned into eventually the Traction Conf and got now 400, like seven years of doing a conference and podcasting for the last few years and lots of videos on YouTube, 120,000 subscribers, but we never stopped. And as a function of that, because we had this understood the circle of influence around our ICP, we know all the people they followed, so we could invite them as speakers. We knew all the other tools and services they paid for, so they became our partners and they became our sponsors. And we knew all the platforms they were prevalent on. And even we knew that they read TechCrunch and VentureBeat and Forbes. So to our events, I don't interview anyone on stage. We ask like Forbes and TechCrunch at least come every year to interview people on stage. And so now when our ICP comes to our events, they feel like it's their tribe. They meet people like them. They meet the influencers they follow, the media, the ape, and want to be a part of. 
and they, they meet the service providers they buy from. And it's a community, right? That they keep meeting over and over again. But that was the journey, man, as a, as if we had one chart as we got to 10 million in revenue, because community attribution is really hard, especially when you're bootstrapped. Till we, I think we got Salesforce when we were over 10 million. So until then, all the leads were coming through the WordPress contact form. <laughs> and it wasn't tied to any CRM automatically. The leads would come in. I would research them instantly on the phone and forward it to the sales reps. And anything that was junk, I just wouldn't pass it. So it was very hard to do attribution when I'm passing it like that. So the only chart I had, I think, going to 10 that we had was the revenue going to 10. And they're like, what's the inflection point? You show another chart saying the number of events you did. And between webinars and meetups and conference, I think that in two years, we would, I think in one year, we did over 100 events. Wow. Compound interest on consistency. Yeah, absolutely. So at peak, we were doing two live webinars a week. So opening up this podcast. And I like the podcast format, but when you open it up, it becomes more interactive because it becomes like an AMA. Audience members interact with each other. They can ask questions. And of course, you can still take the recording and put it on YouTube, on podcast. You can turn it into shorts and all of that. But what we found, and I still believe, is social platforms and podcast platforms, they give you an audience, but you don't own that audience. The only way to own an audience is to have their contact information. Then you can bring them together. And the reason I, I feel lucky to be at a time where LinkedIn and social platforms and podcasting wasn't so prevalent because we did events, people were able to give us their email addresses that we would bring together. And so when we started during the pandemic, doing two webinars a week, we had a conference that got canceled. I had PTSD, meaning <laughs> I didn't want to do a virtual two-day event, something failed. I had done a company in the conferencing space, conferencing for salespeople, and the tech would never work, man at scale. So I'm like, ah, two-day conference, shit goes south. What a bad experience. Everyone's Ooh, be every good. virtual one I tried to attend post-pandemic was god-awful. So yes, but it doesn't work. And I'm like, I can't sit through two days of content. So I reached out to all the speakers and asked them if they would just join a weekly or bi-weekly webinar where I'd interview them and then the audience would ask them questions and they all agreed. And because we had like a canceled conference and 50 some odd speakers, we had half a year of content already. And, and then the inbound came. But what was interesting was each webinar we did, think about what's happening here. I, I'm such a big believer in consistency on small actions versus doing something big. See, you when you do a big conference, the whole year you're promoting that big conference. Come to this conference, come to this conference. When you're doing a different piece of content twice a week, which is a different webinar, you're saying, join me on Tuesday at 11. I'm interviewing the CEO of Twilio and he's going to talk about how they got to, how they handle their IPO. Join me on Thursday at 11 a.m. I'm going to interview the CEO of Zoho. He's going to share how they bootstrap to 10 million and then to a billion in revenue. It's a new piece of content. So it's interesting. It's a different dopamine hit, right? If it's the same thing, ah, buy this thing. It's People are like, whatever. This is a ton of time I'm seeing this right. message. We'll tune that out quickly. You need a different dopamine hit. It's called a variable reward. And then it becomes a habit. And so we were promoting new things twice a week. And as a function of that, our email list, I think entering the pandemic, it was like 35, maybe 40,000 or somewhere there. By the time we exited the pandemic, it was like over 100,000 subscribers. It just tells you the two years that I did two weekly webinars would drive a lot of attendees, would share with people, speakers would share with people. We would partner with other organizations and, and more and more people would register. 
Now I think it's flatlined in the sense that I'm like pushing podcasts and LinkedIn posts. Like it's hard to get people to register, right? And so at some point I want to bring that back. Yeah. All right. So let's quickly fast forward to the book though. Like what inside you said, I've got all these experiences, all these thoughts, all these ideas. I need to put it down into a, a, a book. Who convinced you to do that? Was this your idea? Yeah, definitely. So all my life, I said I was piss poor, but I was happy. When I exited the company, I got depressed. I face planted. I hit my lowest of low. And then when I came back to sanity, it was because of the companions around me, fitness community. And I realized something that, man, it's true what I knew always. It's neither the destination nor the journey, but the companions that matter the most. My journey after coming into money was getting hospitalized for long-form Omicron bilateral COVID pneumonia. I almost died. I was on oxygen. No, Nobody could see me. My wife being a doctor at Stanford couldn't see me in the hospital she's at. People in spacesuits were coming. They had a 24-7 Zoom. Then went into this tailspin of the company hiring so many people and chaos and me leaving the day-to-day. I just felt like I lost my tribe and, and I got depressed. And I came back to sanity and good health because of the community. And I think what I realized is through my experience, I need, and I went on this soul searching, right? Like, why did I feel this way? Like I had nothing and I was so happy. Imagine hanging in the slums of Mumbai in the summers and not wanting to leave. But now I have all the money in the world. I can go anywhere, but I am freaking depressed. I am insufferable. I'm overweight. What's going on? Like I I had to see a shrink. I I went through a very hard time those nine months. And then I realized when I came back to sanity, it wasn't because of the shrink or anything else. It was because of the people, right? And I started researching. And one, I found like loneliness is the number one killer in America. Number two, there are five places in the world where people live until they're 100 functionally. See, functionality is key. Longevity without functionality is useless. And they're called the blue zones. They've got nine traits, four or five of them have to do with human to human social connection. I started looking at businesses, our business, iconic businesses, talking to community leaders, and I started finding this common thread that I talked about over and over again, which is en route to becoming a long-term sustainable being or community or entity, there is one thing that ties it all together that is like a springboard that takes you from an audience to a global phenomena. And that is that springboard is your community. If you harness it, if you build a community, you will not become a commodity. Yesterday's innovation always becomes tomorrow's commodity. Look at it, right? We talk about technology right now. We talk so much about tech, but the tech we talk about is in the last 20 years, right? From 2000, which is what? Dot-com. We stopped saying dot-com company. We stopped saying cloud company. We stopped saying social company. We stopped saying mobile company. Now we're seeing AI, AI company. We were called Boast AI before AI was cool in 2016, 17. Nonetheless, all this is driven by open AI. You think open AI would exist without a community? Open source, people were giving its data. We were part of open AI since late 2019, contributing. So without community, open AI wouldn't exist, number one. As someone who built, helped build an AI company without AI and the power of community, I think I was suited to tell the story. I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to get it out of the system that the most enduring brands and the biggest successes and your mental well-being is dependent on human-to-human connection. And so I think through my personal story and business stories and the stories of sustained 
enduring iconic brands. I've tried to convey the message of community, but also how do you build one and the 13 rules to building them. It was important to me, but if you look back, Nick, we look at innovation as it started in 2000s with the dot-com. But why? Let's go back, right? Let's go back to the 80s where electronics were novel. And then in the 80s, the Japanese commoditized electronics and Harley-Davidson almost went bankrupt when Japanese commoditized electronics, right? And, and then the, the Harley leadership team rebuilt the company on the ethos of community. Community wasn't a marketing strategy, it was a company strategy. It had oversight from the president. Employees went out there and started writer clubs. Readership went out there and started writer clubs. Employees became writers, writers became employees. They formed rituals, and over time, they not only rescued Harley, but they donated to several other causes, movements like Save from Breast Cancer and Autism. Today, you can recognize a Harley fan just by what they're wearing. And as a function of promoting this book, when I go to conferences, I actually dress up in a Harley gear. Even you'll see on the cover of the book, I wear a leather jacket. It's tough to see there, but I wear a leather jacket and I wear knee-high boots. And the first thing people ask me is like, where's your Harley-Davidson bike? And that's what I'm trying to convey here is yesterday's innovation is always tomorrow's commodity. But if you build a community, you will not become a commodity. It's not your network is your network. The network is, is so transactional. Your community is your currency. Brands of yesterday were built on what they kept telling the world about themselves. And brands of the future will be built on what the community says about them. Look at any social platform right now. Brand to human connection is going down. Human to human connection is going up. When you're doom scrolling, you're not doom scrolling brands, you're doom scrolling people. No matter the AI, until the day robots are buying from robots, the biggest, most enduring brands will be built on human to human connection. God help us if we get to that day. We we won't live to see it, so that's fine. <laughs> that's true. I just sincerely hope. Not. Lloyd, this has been a really fun conversation and I appreciate everything that you've shared. It's been such an amazing journey. For people that want to learn more about either Boast or Traction, want to pick up the book, where are some of the best places for them to go? Definitely. Boast is Boast AI. Traction is tractioncoff.io. You'll see our newsletter. You'll see the link to the book. And follow me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of interesting content around community, around mental health, around founder's journey, bootstrapping, yada, yada. Lloyd, double L-O-Y-E-D. There's an E in my name, Lobo on LinkedIn. And the book will be on from grassroots to greatness.com. Right now, it's just the book. But in the next couple of weeks, we'll launch a few other things. We'll launch a Notion doc because I had a hard time reading growing up. So I needed to write the book in stories. And so it's almost like a business novel in many ways of stories. So it's an interesting read. It's an easy read. So my nine-year-old could also read it. And so we'll have a very academic notion doc with templates and guides and backup interviews and reference material for each chapter. So you can take the book further and it'll explain some of the frameworks in detail. And then we'll stream all the podcasts I've been on uh, regarding on this sort of book tour on the website as well from grassroots to greatness.com. And then also access to all my podcast, the Traction Podcast. So there'll be a lot of material on there for you to learn how to build and scale your community. Awesome. The power of community can't be understated. I think we've said it on this podcast many times, how that is how you differentiate from some of the bigger players out there is through that power of community around your brand. So definitely a timely message. But again, Lloyd, appreciate the time. Appreciate all of the insights you shared today and best of luck with the book. Thank you so much, my man. Love and peace. Wishing you great success. Thank you. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.